You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Sebastian Strangio, the Diplomats Southeast Asia editor. Sebastian, how's it going today? Good. Thanks for having me, Ankit. Pleasure to have you back. Uh, as I told listeners on the most recent episode, uh, this does continue our series on taking stock of the U.S. election outcome. Uh, and yes, President Trump is still not conceded, but we are here at The Diplomat, we will proceed with the assumption that President-elect Biden will indeed take office on January 20th. But uh, Sebastian, uh, you are the Southeast Asia editor at The Diplomat, and today we're just going to talk all about Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, I, I should preface this by saying... Um, Southeast Asia is not a unitary thing. It is a general region. There are, uh, you know, 10, 10 countries plus, I guess, uh, Timor-Leste uh, to talk about. Um, we'll talk about ASEAN. We'll talk a bit about security, economics. Uh, but just to begin uh, to sort of set the set the tone for today's conversation, uh, when you look around the region, uh, which governments do you think are going to be particularly pleased uh, to uh, see Joe Biden and company uh, enter office and which ones might be less so? Well, it's, you know, it is hard to say because within each country, there is a great deal, I think, of, you know, great diversity of opinion, um, as well as between countries. But I think, you know, in general terms, we can say that the nations that have most concerns about China will be um, potentially the most, have the most trepidation about what a Biden administration might mean. I think um, the Vietnamese government, um, potentially the government of the Philippines, although it's complex there, given who's in power there, but the the, the, the security and political establishment in the Philippines, um, <clears throat> I think have, you know, quite appreciated the strong line on China that the Trump administration has taken. Um, and there, I think there, there is bound to be some concern that a Biden administration would, would revert to the status quo ante, the, the sort of policy of engagement that the Obama administration pursued toward China, which in many quarters, you know, was seen as very conciliatory, um, that, that sort of prioritized Chinese, um, perceptions and interests, um, to the detriment of some Southeast Asian partners, um, and so, yeah, I think that there's, you know, in general, there will be, you know, nations that have have expressed the most concern about China's actions, particularly in the South China Sea, will 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 wonder whether this this robust American pushback against China will continue under Biden. Um, I think, in general, um, you know, the region will appreciate the return to a, a more level-headed, consistent, and coherent approach which I think we're likely to see under the Biden administration. I think that following on from Obama, the Obama administration, which had you know a very strong focus on Southeast Asia, at least um, at a superficial level, we're likely to see senior officials showing up for important ASEAN meetings, um, you know, putting in a decent amount of face time in the region um, and at least rhetorically centering Southeast Asia, um, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the heart of um, the Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the, I think perceptions of the U.S. election result fracture, you know, once we get down to the national level. And, you know, I think every country has its own mix of concerns and potential, you know, positives uh, or positive reactions to um, the changeover to a Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So let's let's now move a little bit uh, along a few themes here. Uh, so you I think uh, you actually touched on a few of these. Um, let's begin by talking about the general uh, U.S. Um, 
strategic approach to Asia. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in recent years under the Trump administration about great power competition. And the conventional wisdom here in the United States now is that uh, Democrats have come a long way since 2016, and there's almost no chance that Biden's just going to pick up the torch on Obama-era uh, Asia policy uh, because of not only things that China has done, but just also uh, Asian allies have uh, um, new priorities. Uh, the administration that's incoming has new priorities on reshoring alliances, trying to repair the damage that has been done. Um, mm. But what's been interesting is uh, ASEAN uh, and uh, and Southeast Asia in general, I think, has never been quite comfortable uh, with this, you know, great power competition idea. I think it was Prime Minister uh, Li Xianlong of uh, Singapore who memorably uh, at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, last year, uh, you know, used the metaphor of um, when elephants fight, uh, the uh, the grass underneath gets trodden. And I think uh, a lot of Southeast Asia shares that perception. Um when it comes to things like uh, you know re-emphasizing uh, ASEAN centrality and putting Southeast Asia at the center of U.S. Asia engagement, uh, do you do you think that aspect of the Obama-style engagement is going to come back, or do you think we'll see more of a focus uh, on on the great power um, uh, competition aspect of things, even if that's slightly uh, reconfigured uh, to suit the tastes of a Democratic administration? Well, I, th I do think there'll be a you know. Well, a certain amount of continuity in, in that focus on Southeast Asia. I think that one problem that the Trump administration has had in the region is that it's, you know, it's pledged undying support to the region in it, all of its various strategic uh, vision documents, um, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy and, and, and the national security strategy. Um, but when push comes to shove, you know, senior officials haven't shown up for meetings. Um, you know, the U.S. has, you know, um, its engagement with the region has, has appeared episodic and sporadic. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, to the extent that we can see a certain amount of continuity between Obama and Biden, and I think the personnel that, that, that are likely to, to populate his administration suggests that that's a fairly safe bet. Yeah. I think we will see at least rhetorically more of a reinforcement of that, um, of, 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 you know, ASEAN's importance and centrality, um, I do, but I, I also agree that, you know, I, I think a corner has been turned in American perceptions of China, which is unlikely to be reversed. Um, you know, I, I think that it's one of the closest things to a bipartisan consensus in Washington that, that you know, that China poses a strategic, is, is a strategic competitor that the U.S. has to, you know, um, take a much stronger line against. Um, I think we're likely to see more, again, more coherence and more consistency in how the administration approaches that. But I do think um, that is likely to persist um, under Biden. Um, you know, we, we, and there's possibilities that there might be tweaks in language and, and emphasis, but I think the, you know, the overarching um, perception that China is a, comp you know, a competitor more than a, you know, um, a partner will remain um, and will probably continue to dictate to a large extent um, at the American policy towards Southeast Asia. Um, but again, I think there's going to be much more reliance on career diplomats. Um, there's going to be, you know, I think that the administration will probably take on board, you know, the advice and input of a lot of the um, country and region experts that the State Department has. Um, and, and so we're, we're likely to see policy that's probably slightly better crafted mm -hmm. to the um, around the perceptions and interests of, of Southeast Asian states. Mm -hmm. I think one problem with the Trump administration is that it's, it's it's never real. It, it, it's been sort of offering the region a vision of ideological competition with China, a sort of a showdown between 
democratic states and authoritarian ones, which obviously in Southeast Asia, a region with, you know, glancingly few um, democratic states, um, you know, is, 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 has not necessarily been received that well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that we'll, we'll definitely see more coherence. Um, but I think that the, the, the sort of turn against China is, is likely to be permanent and bipartisan and is likely to continue under a Biden administration. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about a few specific countries, uh, and I hope listeners will pardon me for uh, skipping a few just due to time constraints, uh, but that's not to say that uh, you know we're neglecting any particular states. Um, I wanted to begin by asking you about uh, the U.S. relationship with the Philippines. Um, so uh, Rodrigo mm-hmm. Duterte is, is going to stick around until uh, June 2022, uh, the end of June 2022, uh, completing his uh, six-year term. Um, and certainly we saw that he did not have a very good relationship with President Obama. Uh, Under Trump, I think there was maybe a little bit of convergence on style, but on substance, we saw um, road bumps, uh, including the threat to uh, abrogate the Visiting Forces Agreement, which is really uh, still hanging on by a thread. Um, I do suspect, however, that the relationship with the Philippines will be a priority for the Biden folks, uh, just in terms of, Mm -hmm. um, especially the folks who are concerned about security, about keeping things like the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Act of 2014 uh, in in good health uh, for uh, future competition with China. How do you anticipate uh, the U.S.-Philippines relationship um, faring under Biden? Are we we in for more of the same uh, under uh, under Duterte? Well, I think there's, you know, there's, there's likely to be tensions there. I mean, the, you know, the Biden administration has spoken quite forthrightly about returning democratic values to the center of American foreign policy. By the same token, um, you know, one of the main things that's led President Duterte to turn away from the United States and embrace China to the extent that he has, has been criticisms about his human rights record and, 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 and pressure from the U.S. Congress over questions of human rights, particularly his war on drugs. Um, and so, you know, the, to some extent, there's a contradiction here between values and interests that I think exists to some extent across the whole region. But the Philippines offers a particularly, um, you know, clarifying or stark example. And I think that, you know, the U.S. will have to be very careful in how it balances these two things. Um, simply pressuring Duterte further is unlikely to um, repair um, the alliance if anything, it will probably push things in the opposite direction. Now, there is a presidential election happening in two years' time, which, you know, obviously Duterte can only serve a single term. And the question is, you know, just about anybody that replaces him is likely to revert to this sort of historical mean of, of, you know, pro-American, a pro-American foreign policy orientation. But there's also the possibility that his daughter or another one of his allies might run. And it's important to remember that Duterte remains hugely popular in the Philippines. Um, In fact, the one, you know, area of policy that is not popular amongst the Philippine public is his position toward China um, and the souring of relations with the United States. Um, But, you know, public opinion polls suggest that that you know, hasn't really affected his overall popularity. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a decent likelihood, and I think that Washington should prepare itself for um, for the likelihood that, you know, Duterte's, one of Duterte's close allies or uh, could be elected to the presidency in two years' time, um, giving them another um, 
you know, giving us another six years of strategic ambiguity and, and sort of friendliness toward China and hence strain in the U.S. alliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking about Duterte for now, what, four years on this podcast and that mm. the issue of his, uh, you know, the Philippines is interesting because it's uh, it's the most pro-American country in the whole world by by many, um, you know, many measures, uh, including a public mm. opinion. Uh, but then again, you do have a Duterte who is famously anti-American, but remains very popular within the country. Uh, and I think, uh, and I think you set the stage uh, nicely there for um, what lies ahead. Um, mm. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a tough question, which is to comment a little bit on uh, two countries in one go, if that's possible, uh, take your time. Um, one being Vietnam, which has, I think, uh, under the Obama administration, I think we saw a period of new strategic convergence launched that has largely continued under the Trump administration, although there have been road bumps on uh, trade policy and, uh, and tariffs and, and so forth. And the other, Indonesia, uh, the, the largest Southeast Asian country, um, uh, and uh, I think a an important um, pivot, uh, so to speak, uh, in, in, in Southeast Asia uh, and in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, and, uh, and a country that's been content uh, to really uh, continue to portray itself as a little bit of a fence sitter, even as its uh, own uh, tensions in the Natuna Sea uh, continue to rise with China. Uh, so tell us a little bit mm. about what you uh, think uh, is in store for U.S.-Vietnam and U.S.-Indonesia ties. I think on on Vietnam, I think that the, the basic structural underpinning of you know this strategic convergence will remain. That's obviously the the proximity of China, the you know the, the ingrained suspicion of China that the um, the Vietnamese. Communist Party and to an even greater extent the Vietnamese people um, have, um, and I think that that will continue. I think that it's you know um, under Obama it seemed like the sort of the the values question in in relations with Vietnam, the you know the, the the legitimacy of the Communist Party and you know the primacy of human rights was sort of resolved to some extent. That issue was put to one side in the interests of this broader strategic convergence, and so I'm predicting that we'll see. You know, a continuation of the current, um, uh, if, even if the convergence doesn't deepen, because there are, of course, limits to how far Vietnam is willing to go in embracing the United States as a strategic partner, um, it will continue, you know, on the current trajectory. Um, and, uh, you know, as for Indonesia, I think that, you know, it's Indonesia has a, a long tradition of, you know, strategic or at least long tradition of desiring strategic autonomy and is very is, is allergic to great power entanglements. Um, you know, we saw this recently with the Trump administration's reported request for Indonesia to host um, P-8 Poseidon um, surveillance aircraft, um, you know, which was rebuffed by the Indonesian president. Um, uh, and, you know, the, I think that Indonesia will continue to um, approach relations with China in a very pragmatic way. I mean, it's it's sought to it's sought trade and investment from China. It's uh, Indon the current Indonesian president Jokowi um, largely views China, you know, through the lens of his domestic agenda, which is you know premised around bringing economic development, especially to outlying regions of the country, um, via the construction of large scale infrastructure. And so, you know, of course, China's Belt and Road Initiative is perfectly situated um, to to, to, you know, to help support that agenda. Um, and so I think that Indonesia will continue to sit on the fence. I think that, you know, I think more, I think leaders in Jakarta, I think will probably appreciate a more consistent and coherent um, approach. Um, I think that the, the Trump administration's, you know, strange mix of ideological rhetoric uh, and episodic sporadic engagement um, will, you know, 
they'll be glad to see see the end the, the end of that and and to have a more consistent um approach from from what i predict will be a more consistent approach from the biden administration um but i, I don't think that indonesia's basic um strategic calculus will shift i think that it will continue seeking pragmatic benefits from its engagement with china recognizing the importance of china to its own economic development mm-hmm. um while pushing back where you know where it can um you know in in regions of you know overlapping maritime claims with with china um i think that you know like all of the claimants in the south china sea indonesia has been very good at quarantining the maritime and territorial disputes from more productive areas of the relationship and i predict that to continue terrific um so let's uh, move on a little bit and talk about uh Asian uh, economic governance. And I think this is a timely topic given uh, that just four days ago, we saw the finalization of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, which contrary Mm -hmm. to what um, many uh, mainstream uh, outlets have said is not a China-led agreement, but an ASEAN-led agreement. And uh, right. what's clear is that there is demand, uh, not only in Southeast Asia, but elsewhere uh, around around Asia, including in East Asia, um, for a greater trade integration. And a lot has happened over the Trump years, uh, particularly given the American aversion under Trump to uh, multilateral trade. Uh, not only have we seen RCEP, but also the CPTPP. Um, my my perception uh, here in the United States is that uh, I find it very difficult to imagine an American president uh, signing a multilateral trade agreement uh, in the coming years, be that Biden, be that his successor, Republican or Democrat. Um, is, is Southeast Asia moving on from expecting uh, the United States to play an active role in uh, economic rule setting in, uh, in, in Asia or... Is there still an opportunity for Washington to uh, maybe play a role here uh, under Biden, if not directly by joining uh, RCEP or TPP um, in in other ways? I don't think it's ever too late, but you know I think that the um, the backing out of the TPP was a huge missed opportunity um, for the U.S. to be involved in standard setting um, and and you know the writing of the rules of the next sort of era of trade. Um, and here we see sort of a you know, divergence in perceptions between the current political, you know, tendencies in the United States and and those in Asia, which continue to be very, you know, pro-free trade and sort of in, in favor of increased integration and, and, and economic engagement. Um, in the US, I think that, you know, the, the domestic impacts of free trade agreements coupled with, gen, you know, the gen, general and broad transfer of wealth upwards, the shredding of social safety nets, all of these things have made it incredibly poisonous politically to engage in these sorts of deals. Um, and whereas in Southeast Asia, you know, there's still, um, the, the region is still in an era in which, you know, governments are hungry for more, um, you know, ways of, you know, pumping up their economies and, um, and, and generating growth. Now, of course, given the current situation with COVID-19, you know, their desire for economic linkages and restoring those supply chains and those connections is all the greater. Um, uh, and I think, you know, the Chinese at the moment are, you know, the message coming out of Beijing is very, mon- very much one of, you know, we are a partner. We're an unavoidable partner. We're an, an inexorable partner. Um, and that, you know, China having, having gotten hold of the or controlled the contagion within its own borders to a large extent is in a position now to 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 lead the economic revival um, and to to help you know pull itself and you know the neighboring the surrounding region out of the COVID slump 
Um, I think for the United States, you know, it's 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 obviously very challenging. You know, it's um, mm -hmm. its companies are still you know deeply invested in Southeast Asia. Um, it engages in a huge amount of trade with Southeast Asia. But in terms of you know the writing the next you know the next generation of rules around you know um, technology standards, you know e-commerce, um, sort of the next generation um, spheres of economic engagement, you know, it really runs the risk of being left behind. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that, you know, the Biden administration should seriously consider rejoining the CPTPP. The question is whether, as you say, it would be politically feasible for it to do so at this juncture. Right. So to close out, I wanted to ask you one last question. And you touched on this a little bit uh, in your answer on the Philippines, which is the issue of uh, values and human rights. And we, and we look around this region, um, we, of course, have uh, long-running concerns about uh, human rights violations in Myanmar, uh, political protests in Thailand, uh, continuing uh, authoritarianism in Hun Sen's Cambodia, just to give a few examples. Um, you already said that you think the Biden administration will make an attempt to at least uh, nominally bring principles-based rhetoric back to American diplomacy uh, in this part of the world. Um Talk a little bit, a little bit about the countries we haven't really spoken about. Some of the ones I just mentioned. Uh, do you see, uh, mm -hmm. do you see any real scope here for uh, the United States to make a difference, or um, are we sadly going to be uh, in for, you know, more familiar rhetoric from the State Department on on these issues, but uh, no real uh, change, so to speak? Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about the differences between a Biden and a Trump administration, but I actually think that you know there are certain characteristics which you know which will carry over from one administration to the next and one of them is is that is that um that tension between you know um values and interests i think that you know if we look at the trump administration i mean secretary of state mike pompeo's proclamations about the threat posed by china were always couched in you know in, in extremely ideological terms you know um so even the trump administration which you know um you know tr trump himself was very transactional and couldn't have cared less about these principles. But there's certain, you know, I think that there's a sense, you know, within the United States, within American political culture that, you know, American foreign policy is always acting in the interests of promoting democracy and advancing it. It's sort of like, it's it's almost, this rhetoric will always be present, you know, um, regardless of what the actual policy is. Um, and we see, you know, we see this, it was also the Obama administration, um, and the George W. Bush administration also used this language, you know, um, in, in varying to varying extents. So, you know, I think that that there's always sort of a tension there. And the question is how seriously this language is taken. Um, you know, I think that, you know, during the Cold War, the U.S. engaged very pragmatically with Southeast Asia. It supported dictators when it needed to. Um, it, you know, it was involved, um, had a hand in you know, the massacre of anti-communists in Indonesia in the mid-1960s. So clearly the U.S., you know, acts like any great power in its interests. Um, and then sort of the, the values are sort of lacquered over the top of that after the fact. Um, but, you know, and, uh, so I see that there's going to be a continuity there. I think that the Biden administration, just like the Trump administration, will, will face the challenge of claiming to being advancing these values. And, and especially after the Trump administration, which seemed to undermine these values to such a great extent within the United States. Um, you know, I think that, um, but I think, yeah, it'll, there'll be the same contradiction between sort of the avowed aims and, and then the, the broader goal of trying to counter China's rising influence in the region. So in places like Myanmar um, and Cambodia, we're going to see, you know, um, you know, a robust attempt to 
you know, to promote democratic values is going to exist in tension with the need to prevent further Chinese inroads in these countries. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't really know what the solution to that is. I mean, um, in the case of Myanmar, arguably you have the one case in Southeast Asia where the U.S. government and its allies absolutely should be standing up for values. I mean, we haven't, you know, a, what many people suspect to be a genocide taking place. Um, you know, three quarters of a million people have been forced out of the country and, and languish in massive refugee camps. I mean, there's a strong argument that if there's any situation in which we should use that sort of language, it's this. Um, I think that, you know, um, you know, to some extent, um, promoting values is almost a bet on the future. It's a bet that, you know, people everywhere want freedom and that when that freedom comes, if the US is in support of those principles, then it will reap a strategic benefit. But I think, you know, we have to, we have to take, you know, we have to, I think, have a little bit more of a complex view of what authoritarianism is in these countries. And that, you know, actually, you know, it, it emerges from the context of these specific countries. It's not something that's imposed on the outside by the Chinese government or, or indeed by the US government, um, you know, uh, and that democracy is also not something that's imposed from the outside. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, um, the US should probably ad adopt a more um, selective and pragmatic approach towards Southeast Asia. Um, because, you know, the reality at the moment is that there are few nations in the region that can be described as both democratic and liberal. Um, and, you know, these, this is a political reality, which is going to pose a challenge for any outside country that seeks to put values at the forefront of its engagement. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think, I think that's uh, exactly right. And, uh, you know, if, uh, we're talking about betting on the future, one of the bets I feel pretty good about making right now is I don't think the U S is going to be in a position to uh, be in the democracy building game for a while, uh, given our own, uh, difficulties, uh, at the moment. So, uh. You know, we'll, yeah, uh, precisely. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing uh, what the Biden team will uh, come up with. Uh, but, uh, but Sebastian, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, offer your insights on uh, what lies ahead. And uh, looking forward to uh, being back once we have a better sense of uh, where, uh, you know, the U.S. might hit a few roads in the bump, um, a bumps in the road when it comes to uh, Southeast Asia. But also, I think um, looking, uh, you know, I'd love to have you back to talk a bit more about uh, the agency of these various uh, Southeast Asian states amid intensifying great power competition, because I think that uh, often does get uh, overlooked um, in uh, conversations uh, in Washington. So uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks, Ankit. I look forward to the next one. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.